Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is author, historian and paranormal researcher Linda Zimmerman. Linda is a native of New York State's Hudson Valley and has written extensively on the history of that area, a subject which includes an intriguing array of paranormal phenomena. Perhaps best known of these are the sightings and encounters that local residents have had with UFOs, which date back decades to the beginning of the 20th century, perhaps even earlier. Linda wrote her first book on the subject, In the Night Sky, in 2013, which would later go on to be made into an award-winning documentary. In the interview, I talked with Linda about the history of those sightings, how they changed over the decades, and were perhaps at their most spectacular in the 1980s, when scores of people reported seeing vast craft in the skies above them. We also talk about the Hudson Valley area itself, its unusual nature on a broader scale, and the part it plays as the setting for this fascinating weirdness. Enjoy. Linda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Your research is focused primarily on the Hudson Valley area. For people who aren't familiar with that part of America, can you just describe the geography and the landscape? Sure. It's uh, New York, and the Hudson River essentially runs from the capital of Albany, which is about two hours north of New York City, uh, down to the city and empties into the ocean there. So it is a a large stretch of land, but uh, primarily the area um, of in most intense activity, I would say, would be within about 40, 50 miles of New York City um, through that river valley. Right. Okay. And how did you first become interested in this subject? I lived it. Um, <laughs> born and raised in uh, the Hudson Valley. And um, as a child, I remember hearing all these stories. And then in the 1980s, when we had possibly the most spectacular wave of sightings in UFO history, um, you couldn't help every time you picked up a newspaper or turned on the news hearing another story. So um, I obviously had a fascination with the sub subject. And then um, I lectured a on a lot of subjects in the area. And regardless of what I was speaking about, I would have someone come up to me afterwards and start telling me their UFO story. And, you know, I, there was, I remember one time I had given a lecture on the American Civil War. And this lady starts telling me her UFO story. And I, uh, excuse me, did you just walk in? Did you not hear what I was speaking about? She said, no, the way you research and present things, you really need to look into this. And um, after years and years of hearing these astonishing stories, I realized, yes, I this is something I need to pursue because no one else was at that time. Right. Okay. And so that's what prompted you to write your book in the night sky. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and that book itself is you're interviewing the people in the local area who've had these experiences. 
Yes, I um, fortunately uh, was able to meet with hundreds of witnesses, and I tried. Um, I thought that was going to be my one and only book. Yes, <laughs> uh, so much for that. Um, but <laughs> I tried to give a comprehensive look at the whole UFO phenomena. And then, of course, I realized there was a lot more to it than I fit in that one book. But um, people were very generous with their time and their information. And, you know, a ufologist is only as good as the willingness and credibility of their witnesses. Mm, yeah, I, I can imagine. And when you started out your your research and your career as a, as a ufologist, did you go into it with a certain context as to what these things were, what, what people were seeing? Well, I was fortunate enough to have had um, a sighting in in the 1980s of one of the massive silent v-shaped craft and i was fairly familiar with um aviation with planes and high school i took the ground course for my pilot's license um had a had an interest in it and looking at this thing silently m massive craft you know gliding by it's like okay i'm trying to check off all the boxes of what this is not and at the end, I had nothing left over. <laughs> so um, I was, I, I don't know if it would be sympathetic is not the correct term. Um, I was aware of what, what people could have possibly seen. And so I, I at least understood where they were coming from. And, you know, I was not about to ridicule somebody for something I had seen myself. Right, of course. And You've written other books about the UFOs in the Hudson Valley, and which you document cases going back to the early 20th century. But it does seem that that era in the 1980s is when some of the most spectacular things were happening. Some of the hallmarks of that wave were 5,000 witnesses in a single night of massive triangular, roughly triangular boomerang V-shaped craft, brightly lit stopping traffic on major highways with people getting out and looking at it, prolonged sightings. Uh, there were some sightings where people stood beneath these hovering craft for 20 minutes, and this went on for about six years. And I always compare it to, um, if you're familiar with the Phoenix Lights the case yeah. in Arizona, stunning, remarkable one night basic you know it was a one night sighting that was a typical day of the week in in this area for 6 years and yet so many people are completely unfamiliar with with that wave and uh the Hudson Valley you know for 100 years of sightings mm. another incident that i'm aware of is at a a power plant, a nuclear power plant, uh, Indian Point? Yes. That's interesting because uh, UFOs are quite commonly reported near such installations. Yes. Um, there were a couple of incidents there. Uh, one with a, a craft, again, enormous um, size of a football field or more, hovering directly over one of the reactors. Um, 
very, very close to it. And it's, it's, it's undeniable. It, it's not like, oh, it could have been this. No, it's right there over the reactor. We, we, you know, we see this. And it happened on several different occasions. Um, the most dramatic, the guards were told to arm themselves and, and run outside. And uh, they're standing there with their little rifles or shotguns looking at this, <laughs> you know, essentially a battle, an, an alien, or well, I won't say alien, a a unidentified battleship-sized craft over their nuclear reactor, and and we're supposed to shoot at it. I mean, you know, um, it, it it was just stunning, and so many people saw it. In fact, just several years ago, now this happened. I think with the the most dramatic was 1984. Several years ago, my own cousin says something to me. Oh, I hope you're going to write about you know, the UFO, like the night I saw it over Indian Point. And, and my jaw dropped. I'm like, I didn't know you saw that. <laughs> and mm -hmm. he was one of the witnesses. He said, massive, silent, directly over the reactor. Um, so, so many people in the Hudson Valley saw something. And thousands of people saw it over the, this nuclear reactor, over the several incidents that occurred. Mm. And with with this happening, is did people try and take photos and film it? Because it always seems like that's something that that's missing often with with things like this. That where there's people seeing these things, is that for some reason that that evidence doesn't seem to exist or get through. Right, <laughs> right. You know, now we all have our cell phones, which yeah. of course are not well suited to taking pictures of lights in the dark sky. Um, but still, uh, back then, if you wanted to get a video, you you grabbed the large device that sat on your shoulder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was it was a complicated, you know. It didn't you didn't point and shoot. Um, you had to get all your equipment together. But still, there was a, a very good video, which um, was sent. Uh, Bob Pazioli was the name. I believe you can probably look that up on YouTube, his video, which was sent to the Jet Propulsion Lab. And they said, you know, whatever this is, it is a solid object. It's huge. Um, a couple of very good photos that um, certainly revealed a large triangular object, um, brightly lit. Um, but you would think for something seen so close for such prolonged times, there would be dozens, if not hundreds of photos. And unfortunately, they just do not exist. Hmm. Yeah. And with these incidents, with the, the craft that people are seeing, do they remember it disappearing? I know sometimes a, a UFO will shoot away, but it sounds like these large craft are are quite serene. They almost like they don't care that people are seeing them. But do do people do people see them leave, or is there kind of just a moment where it's gone? Or uh, generally, and and I like your term. They these craft didn't seem to care. Um, yeah. <laughs> they they wanted to be seen. You don't you don't light up something like the size of a football field and park it thirty feet above a major highway if you're trying to hide. Um, and what 
generally was described is that these craft would move so slow. So many people said they were walking along underneath it as it moved and they would just generally slowly drift off until they were out of sight. Occasionally they would move at extremely rapid speeds and take off uh, in the blink of an eye. Um, there are a couple of cases where they just seemed to to kind of wink out and the, the witnesses didn't know if it was just because the lights were turned off or it disappeared. Um, but for, I would say the vast majority would just slowly move off. And one thing about these, never did I hear anybody here see them landing hmm. or, or taking off. Um, they were just suddenly in the sky and then they went out of sight. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the skeptic arguments was, well, these were military craft and, um, yet nobody ever saw them taking off from anywhere or landing at any, any particular spot. Um, and plus the other thing against that is there were dozens and dozens of shapes and sizes of these craft. It wasn't everyone was seeing the same black triangle and same light configuration. And I, you know, I would, I, I say, I can see the government making one or two really expensive prototypes of whatever it is they're working on, but are they really making 110 different expensive prototypes? And where do you put 110 craft the size of a cup, a football field or larger. Hmm. Um, you know, it's not like we're in the, the New Mexico desert here. This is the East coast. This is, you know, large cities and sprawling suburbs. Um, you would think someone would notice if there was a little airfield somewhere with massive craft coming in and out of it all the time. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you'd hope so anyway. <laughs> you'd hope so. So um, in, in your research, you've you've recorded uh, sightings of unusual craft that go back, like we were saying before, to the start of the 20th century. How mm-hmm. how easy was it to, to find those cases? How prevalent are they going back in time? I was stunned at how many sightings there had been. I, I was thrilled when I saw the first one for the Hudson Valley in uh, July of 1909. And of course, back then they called them mysterious airships. I know at the sim- uh, simultaneously over in the UK, they were seeing scare ships, they called them. Um, they thought they were Zeppelins, you know, German, German blimps. Um, over here, they really were not seeing the craft themselves because they would fly at night and have these very bright searchlights, uh, one or two searchlights on them. And no one was flying at night yet, and no aircraft had lights on it yet. 1908, 1909, very early in our aviation. And as I said, I was thrilled when I found this one article, and I thought, I wonder if there were any more. And so I started searching. Okay, here's five more sightings. Uh, here's eight more sightings. Uh, here's a dozen more articles. Um, 
that wave, which began in Connecticut and Massachusetts in 1908, spread to New York's Hudson Valley, um, spread up to the Great Lakes, to Quebec in southern Canada, out through New England, uh, into the Midwest. And as, you know, a lot of people uh, talk about the 1897 mysterious airships out in California and Texas. But in all my years, I had never heard anyone speak about this 1909 era wave. And, there's, and, I, and I couldn't understand it once I realized just how much information was out there. Um, but it, it was, I, I think it was overlooked. It's, it sounds like it. I, I mean, I know from the earlier airship flap that there are some humorous stories of like a farmer waking up and there'll just be one of these things in his field and someone will kind of climb down from the craft and ask for water or something. And, and they weren't right. the... So similarly to the giant triangles, the people, the occupants of the craft won't think that what they're doing is odd. They'll just say, oh, can I have some water for my mysterious craft, please? And then they're like, thank you. And then they just kind of climb up again and, and saunter off into the night. Are there cases similar to that in this later wave of sightings? That's what, again, makes this uh, 1909 wave unique. I don't have a single article um where people say anything about occupants right or having them land or talking to anyone again uh 99% are at night and they're seeing maybe maybe an elongated outline you know almost cigar shaped um you know against the star background but they're basically seeing these bright lights which could hover and move extremely fast and stay in the air for hours, which we simply did not have that type of aircraft then. Mm. I mean, of all the sightings, these ones do seem the most likely to be, in, in spite of what you've what you've just said there, the ones that that humans have made. There's this concept of a breakaway civilization, isn't there? That perhaps had more advanced technology, you know, flying at night and having the searchlights and stuff. It does. It, it it does have that sort of um, sort of steampunk vibe to it. <laughs> yes, that's an excellent way to describe it. Um, you know, 10, 15 years later, you would, the, you know, several years later, there were no more reports of this because aviation was, you know, literally taking off all over. Um, but in that time frame, you can't, pin it on dirigibles, not here in the U.S., um, maybe if they were German Zeppelins, you certainly can't, you know, people were saying, well, it must be the Wright brothers or, you know, some great inventor, because there was an enormous amount of money to be made um, coming up with a better, faster, more safe aircraft. And yet, from that time period, from what has been described, a hundred years later, no one has found any blueprints, prototypes, you know, a secret stash of letters, a diary, absolutely nothing. Um, and if it only happened in this area, in a confined area, I might be convinced to say it was an eccentric inventor who never, you know, who never gave up his, his uh, design. 
but it was in Quebec and it was in Boston and it was, you know, it was racing a train out in Peoria, Illinois. Um, there were too many of them in too many locations and not a single one ever crashed um, or was seen taking. There's a brilliant line where a newspaper says, no one knows from whence they come or where they go. Because again, they never see them taking off and they never see them landing. Hmm. And when does this, when do sightings of these sorts of craft start to diminish and fade? Uh, 1910, there were a couple of them. Um, and then it seemed to fade and at least the record fades but my thought is that as human aviation was making very big strides, um, it became commonplace. You know, we're only we're a short distance now from World War One, and you know, fighter planes and real big strides in in aviation. And so, people who saw things in the sky or lights in the sky it didn't have the same type of impact. There wasn't the wow factor. They probably thought, okay, there goes a, one of those new planes. Um, so either it completely ended or it just blended into what we were starting to do. Mm, yeah. With the beginnings of the aviation era as well, did, how does that affect what people are reporting that they're seeing? Are there more cases of misidentification, do you think, well, after this time? Yeah, to be honest, there are so few UFO reports I can find from post-World War I until the 1940s. You know, so the late uh, 19-teens, 1920s and 30s. I could probably count on my fingers the number of ufo sightings that i've heard of in this area hmm. so again does that mean there were none or it was just that people weren't e equating it with something unusual hmm. yeah and and i suppose in this era between the wars uh, perhaps people would be more familiar with dirigibles and and zeppelins so they might be able to think back to, you know, 20 years ago and go, the things that we saw then weren't these things because they're, you know, they're, they're not the same. That's an excellent point. And I would love to come across someone talking about that, you know, a mysterious airships, a retrospective from 1927, you know, something, <laughs> um, which is a good idea because, you know, I really haven't searched the term mysterious airships too much in the 20s and 30s, but it might be something to try to specifically target. Maybe somebody did say, you know, in light of what we see now, what was that again we were looking at, um, you know, back in 1909? Um, so, yeah, it's uh, what you know, the, the scare ships in, in the UK, were they ever determined to be anything explainable? I'm not sure. I, I, I think it's similar to in the Hudson Valley. I think there are some ideas, some early ideas for aviation, but but nothing that quite fits with with you know all the all the sightings that people had. 
Right. And I, I find it um, possibly more than a coincidence that it was happening here at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I just get the sense that if it was something commercial, why hide it? You know, if that's the mis- that's part of the mystery, isn't it? Even if it is like an eccentric genius doing something, I mean, that person would probably want to get their recognition for it. And there are millions of dollars, which yeah, well, seriously, yeah. it would, uh, you know, and if you look at, at some of the aviation prizes, um, wow, somebody just flew 410 feet up in the air. Let's give them $5,000. It was. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're, I mean, you're getting lots of money for flying across the channel and people are seeing craft that can easily do that. So whatever right, reason yeah. it is to hide it, I don't know what that reason is. No, and and obviously there needed to be a lot of people involved. Um, you had to have somebody to build the engine, um, which was a big deal back then. You know, you didn't buy a you know one off the shelf. Um, the where you're storing it, the maintenance, the building, the superstructure. Um, there were no airports really back then certainly no airports with lights because nobody was flying so uh, again we're presented with where were they taking off from um where were they being stored uh there's a, another great article where a newspaper uh they were they were actively sending their reporters everywhere and, you know, it was something like uh, the eagle eyes of our staff will track this down and find out who it is. <laughs> and they never did. Um, so it's 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 something I talk about generally at the start of every Hudson Valley UFO lecture, because I know there will be at least one person in the audience who will say, Everything in the 1980s was government secret projects, stealth technology. And I'll say, okay, even if I give you that, how do you explain this? And then I'll do the 1909 and they'll be, ah. <laughs> so I, I think it's, it's crucial to set the precedent that there were unexplicable, inexplicable craft flying over the Hudson Valley, uh, you know, 80 years, 70 years before that wave of the, of the eighties. Hmm. And so when is the next sort of increase in sightings? Is it, is it around the sort of the world war two early fifties time? Early fifties for sure. Uh, the flying saucer mania, which um, <laughs> hit our country, you know, the post Kenneth, Kenneth Arnold, and then the, uh, the, the height of the blue book era. Um, certainly there were a lot of, of disc shaped craft that were seen, um, not, uh, still not of the extent of the eighties, uh, sixties, there was still a fair amount. We had a fairly intense period, uh, during the 1970s and, um, then with with the advent of the triangle boomerangs in the in the early 80s that's when that's when it really took off mm. and in that in that 50s era are people generally seeing that sort of that classic saucer shaped craft the, the 50s seems to be that era when 
those sorts of craft would be seen. And there's a kind of that contacty era where people tend to have kind of benevolent encounters with the occupants. Is that what's happening in the Hudson Valley as well? Uh, yes and no. Yes, they were seeing the uh, classic flying saucers, um, metallic, you know, saucer-shaped craft hovering, taking off. But I have not come upon any of those contactee cases in this area. You know, the woman who said, well, I just went to Venus. You know, that yeah. uh, that nonsense. Um we seem to have been spared that here. I'm not saying it didn't go on, um, but I have not seen newspaper reports. I've gone through every blue book case for our area, and there's a, a stark lack of any sort of contactees um, apart from a 1929 case, which seemed to be some missing time experienced by a child, there was none of that um, in the 50s and I'd say at least in the early 60s here, mm. which is a point. I'm glad you brought that up because I never really thought about that before, that whole crazy contactee wave um, didn't happen here. Right, okay. Uh, you talked there about um, reading the files from Project Blue Book that relate to the area. What was what was that like, and, and what light did they shed on the things that you were researching? I'd say, in a word, it was aggravating. <laughs> because <laughs> because um, the first case I came upon was uh, we have an Air Force base. Uh, called, it was an Air Force base. It's now a commercial airport. Um, it was Stewart Air Force Base. And the first one I came upon, if you're familiar with Blue Book cases, they all start with those little project cards. They kind of look like index cards. And it would have a summary of the information, the date, the people involved, a quick synopsis, and then the conclusion. And if you re just read this, it was I think it was 1953 involving two officers, Air Force officers at the airbase. And it said, saw a, a star-like object. It was most likely a weather balloon. I'm like, all right. Okay. <laughs> it always is, right? <laughs> yes. So I read every word of the file. And there was, a, you know, you were not, uh, ordinary citizens were not supposed to see all these files because at the time they were classified you know, they didn't know they were going to be declassified at some point. So the next page in the file is written to um, uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Oh, we think we had a an unconventional aircraft sighting here. Like, well, why did they write this letter if it was a weather balloon? And you, yeah. you know, you read, it was a lieutenant and I believe a captain talking about this light zigzagging across the scene over the course of two nights, zigzagging back and forth, gaining altitude. The one officer said it clearly uh, had planned maneuverability. In other words, it was not something just drifting along, you know, with the wind currents. And there was another case where um, uh, the, the weatherman 
before the base also saw something. Now, if he doesn't know what a weather balloon is, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> so the very last line of the last page said that no weather balloons re were released during the time of the sighting. Yet, and it steam's coming out of my ears at this point because I was like, wait a minute, they just said it was a weather balloon. And then when you read their full report, yeah, there were no weather balloons around then. Um, so I realized very quickly they just out and out would lie. And um, they would take part of a report when somebody would say, well, at first it looked like a star. And then they might say, and then it came closer and it was a 400 foot craft. But in the index card, they'd say witness said it was the size of an appearance of a star hmm. and leave the rest out. So I had to go through every page of every file. Um, some were nonsense and, you know, somebody clearly looking for their five minutes of fame. But some of them were phenomenal. Um, so it was, a, it was a wonderful resource if you ignored what the Air Force was trying to tell you was the conclusion. Mm. Uh, could you tell us about the phenomenal ones? <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, yes, I guess I can't use that word and then not explain that, <laughs> not elaborate. <laughs> um, there was a case where a community on the east side of the Hudson River for about the span of two weeks, we're seeing a disc-shaped craft that was coming very, very low. They were describing it very well. Um, witness even drew a fabulous uh, shaped, uh, kind of a do large dome-shaped craft, which actually these craft were landing in the neighborhood she drew this sketch of uh, this, as I said, large dome-shaped uh, circular craft, described it as being the size of a Volkswagen Beetle, was describing it in great detail, um, as were the other witnesses. So two weeks of witnessing this craft with a sketch, um, very credible witnesses, and yet the, um, the little index card said um it was probably a meteor <laughs> right okay <laughs> so uh two week it was a two week long meteor that happened to land and uh, take off again and um so yeah and and all all different sized shapes of rectangular craft um seeing them very very up close um just credible people seeing things that could not be should not have been explained as you know venus and, and swamp gas dare i say um <laughs> at least i didn't see any swamp gas excuses around here but a lot of planet venus ones and predominantly weather balloons and like i said when when the weather forecaster for Stewart Air Force Base cannot recognize one of his own weather balloons, um, you know, we're in trouble. Yeah, he's a, he's a terrible weatherman. <laughs> right, right. Or just, yeah, yeah. Um, 
did you find that people were seeing things, having these experiences at certain times in the year? Oh, interesting. Um, I have not done a study on that. Um, for weather purposes, you know, less people are out during the winter um, yeah, to see them. But still, uh, that's interesting. I, I, I should actually just plot, you know, do a spreadsheet of something or, or of the uh, dates of the sighting. One, one interesting and somewhat amusing correlation I did see seems to be an enormous amount of sightings on March 17th, which is St. Patrick's Day here um <laughs> clearly a lot of a lot of drinking going on that day but um i've had a lot of sober witnesses with uh, one of the largest mass sightings um in the the first mass sighting in 1980 wave was march 17th 1983 and you know again thousands of witnesses and this March 17th keeps coming up. And I said, well, either these are government craft and they know everybody's going to be drunk and not credible <laughs> or, or this is some other <laughs> race of creatures who has a sense of humor and is just messing with, we, with, uh, you know, the inebriated humans. Um, yeah. Uh, Aliens can like Guinness, right? <laughs> they, uh, why not? <laughs> um, so, yeah, that I just, it, it, there were an, so many March 17th sightings that I was like, okay, something is, something is going on here. That's true. But also it makes me think of, I mean, throughout human history, we've had celebrations and, and drank alcohol and and feasted in celebration of gods and all manner of entities. So mm -hmm. maybe this is just a, a continuation of that. Just they got they got shiny new clothes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, but yeah. Um, otherwise, um, I couldn't tell you the the periodicity of the uh, you know the the frequency of the sightings, do they reoccur at certain time? Some people have done some studies overall saying, I don't know, what is it? Every six to nine years we have a wave. Um, I don't know if that's been proven. Um, but yeah, now that I'm thinking about this, I should probably also just plot out the you know the 1909 the 1980s and when the mini waves were to see if there is some sort of pattern to it mm, cool and in this era this is the era when people first start reporting encounters with the beings or whatever they are known as the men in black did you find any cases of that happening yes i did um uh kind of intimidating people uh there was um, the Hudson Valley air uh, wave and and sightings um, kind of extended to northern New Jersey and western Connecticut. If you if you look at this area on a map, um, and there was a wave of sightings in the '60s in a large reservoir called Wanakue Reservoir, Wanakue, New Jersey, and um, there was a couple who saw there was 
you name the person they saw this craft the police chief uh the reverend mother of a nunnery um people with somewhat unassailable characters and many of them and this one couple took some photos which of this craft which were apparently pretty good and all they did was tell some of their friends and they were kind of hesitant should we release these what if it's you know there was this uh, underlying anxiety that what if i just photographed a secret government craft and men in black started slowly driving by their house um would sit at the end of their driveway and just stare at their house they never came to the door fortunately but they ended up um giving these photos to a relative and told him to hide them um and i i think lost track of them but they didn't want to have anything to do with them because you know the men in the black suits the dark car I mean, how intimidating is is that? Somebody pulls up to the end of your driveway and stares at you. Um, yeah, so, especially especially in that era as well, I imagine. Yes, yes. Um, so there have been some interesting. Um, I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but when uh, we started making the film based on my first book the couple who was a couple husband and wife team uh big guy media and um they we were very early in the project and they said one day they're working in their front lawn their yard and a couple of dark suvs with darkened in windows kept slowly going back and forth in front of their lawns just staring at them they really couldn't see much detail of the driver and passengers and i remember the director calling me what have you gotten me into what <laughs> <laughs> and uh, i said well we're you know it's not like we're doing classified information here um but they couldn't figure out you know what other purpose would these people have you know a pair of dark suvs staring at them you know with great intent um so just little things like that which you know are unnerving can you prove what they were no um but not so much the knocking on the door threatening people um more of the intimidation at a distance right okay i mean it, in general with men in black it seems like there's a there's quite a spectrum of experiences um I, I I tend to find so the early experiences that Albert Bender had are, are pretty odd. But some of the other ones seem to be they're officials from the Air Force just trying to in intimidate the witnesses into just leaving it alone. Yeah, I'm sure there's a human aspect to to the Men in Black. Um, so that's probably what what those encounters were. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and nothing like this happening back in the. In the time of the airships, no one, <laughs> no one intimidating no. people to say they didn't see that airship with a spe spotlight. No, <laughs> and I'm glad you, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up again because a very important key factor is today people say, oh, it was mass hysteria. I challenge anyone to find any article that talked about these things as alien, extraterrestrial, something from Mars or Venus. No one, 
absolutely no one in any of the dozens of articles I found thought this was anything other than some brilliant human inventor who had come up with a new aircraft. So um, that is very important to mention. No one was hysterical that we were being, you know, invaded from yeah, uh, yeah. a distant planet. Yeah, and, and mass hysteria is such a, an easy catch-all term to to kind of make something go away quickly, isn't it? Um, yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. We can't explain it, so let's call it mass hysteria. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, in, in your book, The Hudson Valley UFOs, you talk about a, a name for the area being um, uh, Abduction Alley. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how it got that name? Uh, that got that name because I made it up. Uh, okay. <laughs> <because> <laughs> I, I came up with it because uh, there just seem, it just seemed to be a corridor um, very close to the river itself where there was an inordinately high percentage of cases were missing time or out-and-out abductions. I know people are very sensitive about the word abduction now, want to say contactee or experiencer. Um, But when I started my research, I thought the majority of sightings are going to be distant lights in the sky. And our first interview for the film was a man with a multi-generational abduction experience that was was just mind-blowing. Um, he, he had experiences going back to the 1950s. His parents had experiences going back to the 1930s. Um, and then so many people, it was it was almost predictable. I'd be talking to them if they had a very close, intense sighting, there was there was absolutely more to it. It was lights in the sky, okay, that was it. But I I learned to develop this uh, series of questions. Uh, do you know what time it started? Well, you know, it was 8.45. I know because I was on my way to this this meeting. Okay, and you say it hovered at treetop level for five minutes. Right. Um, what time did you get to your meeting? You know, I everybody was telling me I was really late. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and anything subsequent? Yeah, a lot of strange things happened after that. What about previous? No, nothing. Oh, well, wait, now that you mention it, you know, my mother said she had something happen, or my sister later. Um, and it just, it would just unfold like a flower blooming. It was, okay, here comes the rest of the story. And it was remarkable because these people experienced these things, but they never really questioned it in great detail and didn't look at it in a greater perspective. And once you'd get them talking and they started thinking about it, um, it just would start spilling out. And then they'd say, wait a minute, I didn't realize that happened to me. <laughs> um, and some people would get upset and some people were fascinated and, and you know, wanted to know even more. And I realized, particularly in the 1980s, it was like Abduction Alley. The, the lower Hudson Valley was a corridor for these experiences, both east and west of the valley, young, old, um, brothers, sisters, parents. It, 
it was it was something I never prepared myself for when I had started this work. Mm, I am. I can imagine. So the, the experiences that that these people had and the people in the family had going back their decades, like you describe, are they the kind of abduction experiences that we see in pop culture? I, I, I don't mean sort of in the, in the aggressive way, but in terms of meeting beings on a craft, is that, is that what they experienced? They certainly saw this one man's mother who was a child in the thirties. Um, both she and her future, future husband who lived in the same apartment building were seeing short, very white, large-headed, large-eyed beings going back to their childhood and, and seeing them. Um, they did not see them on craft. They saw them years later in their yard. They, the one man, he woke up one night, it was standing by his bed, um, and then he wouldn't remember anything. So uh, certainly contact. Um, what happened once they were unconscious, nobody can say. But their son, who started having experiences, missing clearly missing time experiences in the 50s, I'll give you an example. He's driving to the, his, as an adult, is driving to a store one night, two-minute drive, he sees an egg-shaped craft uh, landing in a field uh, similar to what he had seen 40 years earlier as a little boy. The next thing he knows, the craft is taking off. His car is stopped. He doesn't remember stopping his car. He gets to the store and an hour is missing. He should have been there in two minutes. An hour had gone by starts having bloody noses, finds scoop marks, carterized scoop marks on his leg, the back of his neck, um, all what we would consider the classic abduction experience, but no recollection of being on a craft and being experimented on or whatever happens. Um, so the people I spoke to would generally see a craft, then realize an hour, two hours, five hours had passed. Um, but to my, the, the ones I have personally spoken to do not remember, you know, that classic laying on a table, bright lights in their eyes. They just don't remember. Right, yeah. Because I, I know that um, in the, not immediately um, close to the Hudson Valley area, but Two of the most well-known abduction cases are Betty and Barney Hill, which was mm -hmm. further to the north. Right. Um, and Whitley Strieber as well. Um, oh, Whitley Strieber is smack dab in the middle of the Hudson Valley. Oh, okay. Sorry, I, I didn't realize that. I knew, he, I knew he was in New York State. I didn't know that's where it was. Wow, okay. Yes, yes. Not, not close to the river, but um, not far from Pinebush, which is known as the northeast capital for UFOs. Um, so that is definitely Hudson Valley territory. His, um, his take on his experience has changed over time, hasn't it? I, I know that initially it was very, yes. it was very traumatic, but over time he's, he's kind of come to see it from a more kind of positive point of view, almost like he had a, 
like a, a shamanic experience, but it was the mm-hmm. entities that initiated it rather than rather than the, the person. Right. I read the book he co-wrote with um, Dr. Jeffrey Kripal, The Supernatural, where he goes into that in more detail. It's really, it's really interesting. There was a case, um, um, man who, when he was a little boy, had these horrific experiences and was terrorized by them. Something, you know, he felt was taking him. 50, 60 years later, he finally talks to his brother, finds out his brother was having the same exact experiences. They never talked about it. Um, And I said, well, how do you feel overall? He said, as a child, I was terrified. But he said, as he looks back at it now, he said he thinks of it as when you take a puppy to the vet, you know, a sick puppy to the vet, because he was very sick when he was a child and somehow got better. And he looked at it as they were trying to help. I was too young and scared at the time to realize. But now he looks at it all as a positive experience and that these whatever they were, were helpful. So I thought that was um, interesting. On the other end of the spectrum, I interviewed another man who had lifetime experiences, and he said, if I had a gun, I would shoot them all. So, um, you know, different people certainly look at their experiences quite differently. Mm, Of course. From all your research on this subject, do you think that there's something about the Hudson Valley itself that that is causing these things to happen or, or is part of why it's happening? There is something here that attracts whatever it is. That Of that, I am convinced. What that is, is it something with the natural earth energies here, uh, the geology, the fault lines? I, I don't know. But I suspect it's something that goes way back and uh, probably something we will never figure out. But um, there has just been so much happening here for so long that I, I can't say it's just a coincidence that it keeps happening here and keeps happening here with such intensity. Hmm. Um, there, there is a reason. And you can fill in the blanks. <laughs> <laughs> I wish someone would fill in the blanks. <laughs> And and what about other paranormal, supernatural phenomena? Things like ghosts, uh, Bigfoot, cryptids. Uh, is the Hudson Valley a hotspot for those sorts of things too? Absolutely for ghosts. Um, and that's actually how I started my um, paranormal type career. Um, oh, for over 25 years now, I've been investigating and writing about haunted sites. And they are everywhere there's i can't keep up with how many there are um i i resisted cryptids for a very long time it was the one rabbit hole i didn't want to fall into um (laughs) but so many people have told me their bigfoot or cryptid stories it's um there's one one area uh in the town of tuxedo new york where um generations of UFO sightings, very close UFO sightings. And one story of a man driving down this one mysterious stretch of road, and he sees 
the classic Bigfoot crossing the street. But the difference is, he said he only saw a slice of it as if he was looking through a partially opened door. And wow. this so, yeah, this so terrifying. And he was a very normal, rational, intelligent person. Um, he will not drive down that road ever again. Uh, that's how traumatic this was. But, you know, if you believe what he saw, what does that imply? Is it a interdimensional somehow? Was he seeing into a slice of an alternate reality? Um, I, I don't know, but I, I have been pulled into the world of cryptids here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's easy to happen. <laughs> it is, it is. In fact, I just did a little YouTube video. Um, I think it was 1880. I came across a series of newspaper articles from the town right next to where I live now, where a large eight foot tall, they called it the wild man of the rocks, um, dark, shaggy, black, shaggy hair, um, could run on all fours. But when it stood up, it was eight feet. And of course, a hunter tried to kill it. Um, shot at it and shot off a big clump of its hair, which they said they had saved. I would love to find the family of that man and see if they still have it. Um, so what was eight foot tall with long black hair running around the Hudson Valley in 1880? <laughs> exactly. So it's easy, it's easy in this area to... Um, to really uh, get pulled into the mysteries for for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's there's so much interconnectedness with a lot of these phenomena. You know, especially in hotspots, there's it just seems to all be happening. It's, mm -hmm. it's um it's 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 a great thing I think to acknowledge if you're interested in the paranormal and and paranormal research is it is that sort of interconnectedness of of weird things happening. <laughs> Yes, no matter how hard I fought it, um, I can no longer deny that the um, the ghosts, the hauntings, the UFOs, the cryptid, the high strangeness, um, we we have it all here, and I'm sure it's for a very specific reason. Hmm. Something else that you have in that area, and you've written about, are unusual archaeological sites, which have um, been largely ignored by the mainstream archaeology. You've written a book about it called Mysterious Stone Sites. When you were writing that book, did your research for that at all cross over with your research into the weirder stuff? Well, certainly there is a correlation. The reason I became aware of these stone chambers and, and other sites um, was because during the 1980s, a lot of these uh, sightings... Uh, they were being plotted as to where are they happening? Is there anything? In fact, J. Allen Hynek um, talked to a local resident who happened to be a Lamborghini um, mechanic and um, said to this man, what is it about these locations? Do you have anything strange here? He goes, well, we have these stone chambers and local historians say they're nothing more than uh, root hmm. cellars but they're completely ill-equipped as root cellars. They're damp, no ventilation. Um, they're above ground. Um, and 
Hynek thought there was some something because, as you said, if you stuck a pin where many of these sightings occurred, chances are there was uh, one of these stone sites directly under it or extreme uh, close by. So that's how I became aware of them. A lot of ghost stories, people seeing lights in and out of them, uh, hooded figures, Vikings, you name it. There was the <laughs> urban legend. But um, I've been an amateur astronomer since I was a little kid, and I just love archaeoastronomy. I started to find at these stone sites, oh, wait a minute, this line of boulders is winter solstice sunrise. Oh, that's a coincidence. Uh, until you find, you know, another 50 alignments at, at sites in the area and came to realize many of these places are ancient calendar sites. Hmm. Um, I believe they're Native American, um, which is not a popular view because on the one side, the conventional historians say, they're all colonial built. It's random field clearing uh, root cellars. Then on the other end of the expect a spectrum, no, it wasn't Native Americans. It was Celtic monks who came over 800 years ago, or it was the Phoenicians, or that. And so <laughs> I have a very unpopular uh, viewpoint, which fortunately is uh, starting to gain some traction here in the Northeast. Um, but so many of these sites have been obliterated because they're not recognized as having any importance. They're, in fact, um, this one area with the stone chambers, they had a form that an they'd pay an archaeologist to fill out a site of insignificance form so that they could destroy these sites. And it's criminal, really. It is a crime against humanity, I think, to... Yeah, definitely. And, and I think there's a lot for us to learn. You know, ancient peoples had such a direct connection with the sky hmm. um, in terms of survival. When can we plant? When should we prepare for the winter? And then, obviously, the, the spiritual ceremonial significance, you know, their gods lived in the sky or came down from the sky. So why wouldn't you want to recognize, memorialize, worship them with, with structures? And there are plenty of stones in the Northeast with which to do that with. Mm, yeah, and, and as well, I, I think there's some evidence that some structures might have been sort of predicting things that were going to happen in quite in the future. So, you know, some sort of cataclysmic event, they could, they'd know from the night sky that something was about to happen and they could prepare for that. Yeah. Even something as simple as, um, well, they say simple, um, eclipses. Th mm. Those were great importance and, you know, they, they would traumatize people who weren't prepared for them. And if you could predict them in advance, you know, you could work your magic to counteract whatever was happening. But um, th there was one site on top of a mountain um, that unfortunately a, uh, well, fortunately a, a hunting club owns now. 
Um, so they're not developing it, but, um, someone years ago had said that, you know, this, this row, these rows of stones, they speculated might have something to do with lunar alignments because, you know, I had one, uh, Native American say to me, you know, our, our ancestors lived by, you know, counted time by the moon, not Mm. the sun. And so, I just had a hunch, um, you know, white quartz is often used around the world to represent the moon. So I was walking through these waist high weeds following this trail of, of boulders farther than was on this survey map. And I come upon this enormous dome shaped chunk of white quartz. And if it didn't look like the moon sitting in the ground. Um, I don't know what would. And I, you know, I was uh, literally jumping up and down and I said, yes, this was a lunar alignment um, marked. If you're familiar with the major and minor standstills, the 18.6 year cycle of the, of the moon, um, that's what they used. And what better way to tell visitors or remind your people, yes, this is the lunar alignment um, with this chunk of quartz. But if you don't look, you will not find the importance of these sites. Um, So I've kind of made it a a quest for myself um, to raise awareness as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I I do think sometimes that it might be that uh, cultures and societies in the past they they had a more of a, a connection with the universe, or at least they they saw themselves as having that connection. And they, you know, the, the sort of the psychogeography of the things that they built were they put these things in these certain places for a reason, mm-hmm. and that allowed them to sort of see the universe in a certain way. And then, sadly, these people will either die off or or move off of their land, and and the sites fall into disrepair. But the, but the reason that they're there is still works. Like they're still sort of they still work in a way. And then there are just people around that don't know what this thing is doing, and so they're experiencing phenomena, but they they can't sort of contextualize it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people don't know what they're looking at today. They're so unfamiliar with the night sky. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it is interesting that that UFOs they generally change their appearance to sort of fit the aesthetic of a certain era. Like they 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 change their fashion sense mm-hmm. almost. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know the the 1897 people were describing like Jules Verne type craft. Um, and <laughs> you know when flying saucers, everybody's seeing flying saucers, and it, yeah, it's. I I know exactly what you're saying, and I think you're absolutely correct. They uh, the chameleons. Um, let's blend in with whatever <laughs> they're expecting to see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the moment we've got uh, Tic Tac UFOs, but we haven't mm-hmm. had any um, hipster UFOs yet. That's the next. <laughs> oh, please! That's when I quit ufology. <laughs> That'll just be the, the airships again, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Right. <laughs> Need them right. back. That, yes. that, that'd be fun. I think. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's um, it is an absolutely fascinating, maddening subject that when you really start looking in, 
into it. It just pulls you in and hooks you. And anyone with an inquiring mind cannot resist the pull of this topic. No, I absolutely agree. Well, Linda, this has been a, a really brilliant conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure, really. I, I really appreciate uh, wonderful questions and the time for me just flew by. If people want to find out more about yourself and your books and, and your and your work, how best do they do that? Well, they can go to Amazon. Um, all my books are available there. I have a UFO podcast um, called UFO Headquarters. They can find me through that. I have... Um, Hudson Valley UFOs Facebook page, and I have a website which is go to zim.com. G O T O Z I M. Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to put that information in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Take care. Bye bye. The great thing about the sightings and encounters reported in the Hudson Valley is that a lot of what is understood to define the UFO phenomenon is captured there in microcosm. We have pretty much everything on the close encounter scale, reports of men in black, abduction experiences, and the attention of Project Blue Book. Furthermore, we can see that the visual appearance of the craft, or whatever it was that people have been seeing over the decades, is highly varied, but tends to change as a whole from era to era, often reflecting how UFOs were depicted and perceived in popular culture at the time. I think that's really important to understanding their true nature, whatever that might be. Also, it should be noted that there is plenty of other weirdness happening in the Hudson Valley. Numerous reports of ghosts and cryptids, not to mention the mysterious stone sites Linda has investigated, which show their builders had a sophisticated understanding and connection with the night sky, and most likely the cosmos itself. Anywho, that's all for now. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If so, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. Also, sharing it on social media and following the show on Twitter really help it to grow and find new listeners. You can find some of The Sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and on most of the well-known podcast platforms. And you can now also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi. There is a link for that in the show notes. Some of The Sphere will return soon with a new episode. Until then, be safe and well, and thank you very much for listening.